Welcome to another edition of the Big D Podcast. Joining us from Ocala this afternoon is Tom James. Tom, uh, how's Ocala? Dylan, it is fantastic. Uh, we are in the horse capital of the world in Ocala, Florida, which also happens to be my my hometown. It's where the, the Tom Weiser was invented. So <laughs> it's a beautiful area right in the middle of the state. So it's uh, it's my stomping grounds. I thought Louisville, Kentucky would have been the uh, horse capital of the world, but uh, Ocala might be. Ocala is either one or one A, right? Well, we actually have the patent on that title, and it's because we have more overall number of horses here than anywhere else on the globe. And we also have uh, the more wide variety number of breeds of horses, more in Ocala than anywhere else in the United States. Okay, so speaking of horses, the Dodgers sure look like horsemen in the World Series, uh, beating the Rays in six games. Uh, Obviously, Dodgers winning the World Series wouldn't have surprised anyone, but did anything surprise you in the World Series? (laughs) Well, first of all, let me just say that uh, I'm a huge baseball fan, and with all the challenges uh, this year, uh, it was great to see uh, the the grand old game uh, be able to be played, get all the way through a shortened regular season, having a fun and exciting uh, bubble version of the postseason with extra teams, uh, and, and that was great. I think uh, for a baseball fan uh, uh, to get it all in w- was awesome. I think a lot of people going in uh, definitely expected to see the Dodgers represent the National League. Uh, the Rays, as they always are, are supposedly a surprise to people, but for whatever reason, even though they don't have the big payroll, the big free agents, and the household name stars, they always seem to be there. So uh, they're kind of an exciting underdog to always be able to pull for. So it was great to see that sort of a matchup. Um, I'm not surprised the Dodgers won now. Getting to the specifics of game six last night. Dylan, where do you start? Uh, Well, let's see. Uh, After Austin Bones got aboard with one on the sixth inning, uh, Kevin Catch made what could be one of the most infamous decisions in playoff history by removing Blake Snell. Uh, to me, I didn't think it was a bad move because Snell had not gone more than five and two-third innings the whole season, and third time through the lineup is often where pitchers run into trouble. And even though Mookie Best struggled this year against Southpaws, He's still one of the three or four best players in baseball. Meaning, despite Nick Anderson's struggle, and Kevin Cash went with arguably his best reliever and fortunately didn't walk. Well, Dylan, you're, you're very astute in, in the observations that, that, that you made right there. And uh, you could certainly on paper look at it uh, in the way that you said. And that is that the analytics that the Rays have, their pattern the entire season, uh, especially with Blake Snell, has been let him go through the order about two times, 
show all of his pitches, which he does right out of the gates. A lot of times uh, great pitchers will hold back a pitch or two in their arsenal for the second and third time that they face uh, hitters. He always shows everything he has, all his cards, starting with the beginning of the game. So they have seen everything he's got by the time they roll around to uh, the third time around. On paper, I get it. I get that that's what the Rays do. That's what Snell's used to. He's not used to going any further than that. The bullpen realizes that they are expected to be ready at that time. Ordinarily, in a regular season game, do I get that decision? Probably. Last night, absolutely not. I want to say this, a couple of things. Your body... Your emotions, your inner juice in game six of the World Series is flowing and ticking way more and way higher than it ever would be in the regular season. And when a guy that you have, a former Cy Young winner, is clicking with crisp pitches like he was last night, that's when you take the big piece of paper with your analytics on it you crumple it up and you drop it in the garbage can. That's when you, you use the human eye test and say that Blake Snell right now, even though he gave up one single in the fifth inning, is absolutely our best chance to win on the mound. Yes, the top of the order was coming up. It was going to be Mookie Betts. Well, Mookie Betts has, I think he had hit either 16 or 17 home runs this year. Zero, though, uh, yeah, that's right, zero against lefties. Uh, Snell had handled him. Snell had frustrated the Dodgers. Uh, For the Dodgers, that was a gift. Seeing Blake Snell taken out of that game, they thought, we have a shot now because that guy's unhittable. Whoever they bring in is going to be easier to face than, than Blake Snell. So while I understand the reasons why on paper your system is to take him out there, I think you got to let the horse ride when he is pitching at an exceptional clip. He was special last night. I mean, he was special. Game six of the World Series, he wanted that ball, um, and that was your best chance to win. And while I think Kevin Cash has done – A phenomenal job with the Rays over the years. Tough position he had taken over for Joe Madden a few years ago. He learned on the job. He's become a great manager. He made a big error in judgment, I think, last night in taking Blake Snell out of the game. Well, it wasn't that Snell was fatigued. I mean, he threw, what, 70-something pitches. So fatigue wasn't a problem. Could it have been? The situation for the Dodgers, uh, it doesn't matter if Marion Rivera is coming into the game. We'd rather face the other team's best reliever than Snell. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, – the, the other part of it, though, I mean, you, you can't uh, – you also have to put it a little bit on the Rays' bats. Oh, they got to score some runs. Oh, maybe a lack and, of bats. Yeah, the lack of bats. Uh, and uh, the one guy who is hitting all the home runs, it, it can't all be just him. The great rookie 
it, it just it can't be just him. There have got to be guys all the way down the lineup, past the four hitter, that are going to step up. Um, they they can't keep having to win like that. And I think that finally caught up to them in, offensively. Well, if you look at the three, if look at the game five, the ALDS, game seven, the ALCS, and game six, the last time told series, those three games were low-scoring affairs. And Tampa can win a lot of low-scoring affairs, but you know what that means? The bullpen gets tired and – and the other team sees your best relievers. I mean, Nick Anderson dominated the Yankees and most part the Astros, but then struggled in the World Series. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he did, and and I mean they've got some fireballers, including him, <clears throat> in the bullpen, and and they know their role. Um, usually, they come up big. Uh, was four runs too much to overcome? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, but I just think it really, sadly, is going to all come back to the decision to take Snell out of the game with a slim one nothing lead when the guy, other than giving up uh, an early hit and giving up the, the single there in the fifth inning, to me that is nowhere near enough information to tell me that he's losing his touch. That's not enough information. And I think you've got to throw out the analytics in a situation like that and let the guy be Jack Morris in 1991 uh, for the Minnesota Twins until he really, you see, struggling. Make him your horse. Let him go as far as you think he can go. The velocity wasn't down. His placement wasn't down. Uh, his variety of pitches, he was hitting all the spots. Uh, there, there was no indication that that was eroding uh, last night. So I think, yeah, sadly, even though I think Kevin Cash is a great manager, he may regret that. He did follow the Rays' script, but sadly it, it did not turn out the way they had hoped. Well, speaking of script, uh, why can't the Yankees get over the script of always falling in October? I mean, you haven't won a World Series in 11 years while well, – all the other big franchises have won at least one recently. <laughs> well, I, I like how you refer to that as you guys, because yes, <laughs> yes, I'm a Yankees fan. Uh, and uh, yes, you're preaching to the choir on that. Uh, it just goes to show you, Dylan, that big money free agents don't always add up to World Series championships. Look at the Rays. They win the division or they make it in the wild card or they're there every single year without any of that stuff. Uh, at the end of the day, though, guys who can play, if you load up a roster like the Yankees do and you have a pitching staff like they have, uh, you've got to see some results. Why isn't that happening? Well, I don't know. Uh, guys aren't stepping up at the right time, I guess, is the, the best thing I can tell you. Um, uh, maybe they're taking things for granted. Maybe they're not hungry enough. Maybe that's too much money, uh, and they're resting on their laurels. But, uh, yeah, Yankee fans are a little frustrated that uh, they expect to be there because they're the Yankees. And 2009, for a lot of teams, isn't all that long ago. For the Yankees, it is. So they got a lot of questions to answer in the offseason. 
Yeah, and especially when you know, the, the Red Sox have won a couple of titles the last decade. The Rays not only won the division, but went to game six of the World Series. And, of course, the Dodgers won the World Series. So while some big markets have done have won in October, the Yankees have not done so. I mean, does that mean the Yankees need to go need to spend more money on Trevor Bow or JT Rio Muto? <laughs> uh, whoever it is, it's got to be pitching that stays healthy. Uh, and I think that's that's a big thing. And you know, there is a little bit of the limelight that it I, tends to affect guys who come from other markets where they've done real well. And then they step into the Bronx, lights are brighter. Media's tougher. They don't hold back up there. They're mean. Fans expect everything. It's a pressure cooker. It's not the same as like playing in, uh, you know, Colorado or Seattle or something like that. It's New York. So, yeah, it adds a little pressure. But uh, health, you, you see the Yankees have been a mash unit every single season with all of these uh, star players, Judge, uh, all the way down the line, have been hurt for big portions of the season, as has their pitching staff. So I think if the Yankees were to stay healthy with all the talent they have, it'd be a different story. Yeah, maybe, maybe if Judge Stanton and uh, who's the other guy? James Paxson, some of these guys would have stayed healthy. You guys wouldn't have faced the race in the playoffs. I mean, you, you look at it. I mean, some people want to blame Aaron Boone for losing in October, but you faced the Astros, Red Sox, and Rays the last four years. Yeah, and Araldus Chapman is such a terrific closer. Except there's a lot of Yankee fans out there. There are a lot of them that don't always trust Araldus Chapman um, in key moments. He doesn't have the greatest, most sterling record uh, in key moments. Regular season games that don't mean a whole lot, he's nearly untouchable. But uh, it's not always that that way in the playoffs with him. Yeah, just ask Jose Altuve, Coles Correa, a few and uh, Mike Brasso about it. So Mike Brasso for the Rays most recently. That's right. So uh, what do you think about UFC? I mean, obviously, before the pandemic hit, the Trojans would have faced Alabama and Notre Dame this year. And now you face six Pac-12 games in the oddest schedule I've ever seen in college football. Uh, well, at least they're playing, and that's kind of exciting for USC football fans. But uh, where do you start with the Trojans? You know, one of the blue blood programs historically in all of college football. You saw the most recent dynasty that they had back in the 2000s. Liner, Bush, Pete Carroll, the whole deal. A couple national championships, Heismans. So USC fans, of course, get spoiled, and they – like other big programs and teams, they expect that all the time. Uh, that has not been seen for the better part of the last decade. Uh, USC needs to dominate, first off, the Pac-12. The Pac-12 for USC should be a pushover. That's my opinion, but that's what it should be. So until USC can dominate the Pac-12 – um, 
it's tough love on my part. They, they just don't need to be in the national discussion. Uh, that said, they've got a lot of talent and experience coming back this year. They've got uh, a quarterback that a lot of people are big believers in. He became a star last year, Keaton Slovis. Uh, he stepped in when uh, JT Daniels went down with an injury. Uh, JT never came back and transferred. Now he's with uh, playing for the Georgia Bulldogs. So Keaton is a special type of quarterback. And, yeah, he's got all the talent around him. But here's a couple of things. One of the things that I want to say that USC will never be able to compete in this day and age with some of the great SEC teams, uh, whether it be Bama, uh, the teams that, that are so great up front, uh, Clemson out of the ACC, uh, the way Ohio State plays these days, the thickness in the trenches and the speed, USC has not shown that. And until they get tougher and meatier, and batter in the trenches on both sides of the ball, they cannot compete at that national level. And that's just the, the, the facts. They have all kinds of great skill position players. But those guys will never be able to, to, to show out like they really could if the quarterback isn't protected like he should be. And the physicality is where USC has to improve. I want to say one other thing about uh, USC as it relates to the Pac-12. If I'm USC, I am seriously considering bolting the Pac-12 conference. And I don't know if that's actually happening or not, but if I were USC, I would put it out there. I would almost threaten the Pac-12 conference with, as a conference – you need to shape up or we, USC, your flagship program, we're out of here. Because it's not doing a blue blood national type of program, historic program like USC, any good to be playing in the Pac-12. Uh, they, they, they don't know how to market. Um, they, a lot of the schools do not take college football uh, as importantly as they should. The passion isn't there like it is in other parts of the country. Uh, and, Therefore, uh, USC can't compete like they should be able to. So if I'm USC, I'm saying, guess what? Here's what we're giving you, this kind of a timetable, or we're going to be getting on the phone with the Big 12, something like that, okay? Maybe we'll take little old UCLA with us uh, so that the Big 12 can have the entire LA market, but we're going to go play in the Big 12. So we're thinking about that, Pac-12, just so you know, if you want us you gotta, you gotta uh, tighten up your game a little bit. Could the Pac-12's problem also be that that conference's TV deal and revenue settings cannot compete with like the Big Ten OSCC? Because if you see, I mean, yeah, Oregon won the Rose Bowl last year, but I mean, when's the last time USC actually? could evenly play against an SEC team. I mean, USC, the time USC and Alabama played in Arlington looked like, looked like one-way traffic. I mean, even when Sam Donald played against that great Ohio State pass rush, it was one-way traffic the whole night. You couldn't be more correct uh, and embarrassing. And I think that goes right back to the trenches. Uh, they got to be tougher. Uh, USC just finished what they call hell week 
uh, in in practice. They got to make their entire preseason practice hell week. Okay, uh, they have got to be tougher, tougher, or they never will compete with those teams. You know, so back in the Pete Carroll days when USC was absolutely owned college football, they were beating teams from all over the country. You know, they won a home and home against Auburn. They won a home and home against a, what was a good Arkansas team at that time. Uh, you know, they were beating teams, you know, all over the country, and they would play anybody anywhere, anytime, and, and they didn't have a problem with it. Uh, but that's not – that's 15 years ago. So that's not the case today. Uh, they beat Penn State in the Rose Bowl, a big big eight – or uh, excuse me, a big ten team a couple of years ago. But, but yeah, they, they have shown that they cannot compete with – the SEC, the ACC, uh, Ohio State, as you mentioned, uh, was at the Cotton Bowl three or four years ago. And, of course, the game against Alabama. Uh, they were going to play Alabama again to start this season, and they didn't get an opportunity to do that. That's not the worst thing that's ever happened if you're a USC fan. <laughs> Did you really want to see that game again? I'm just saying, uh, have you seen Alabama's offense this year? The tide look, the tide look engaged. Mac Jones is setting all kinds of records. Yeah. And Notre Dame's yeah, not half bad either. I mean, you'd be playing two top five, six teams in the country. Well, you know, USC has got to get – it's act together, and that probably means uh, uh, a, a big-time coach. So there's always a rumor every single year uh, about who that might be. But, but uh, until that happens, you know, you get the right coach in there. You've seen it all over, all, all through the years. You get the right coach, anybody can win. Anybody can win. Uh, and, and why wouldn't a great coach want to – take that challenge to go to a blue blood, a traditional program like USC and take the reins. You know, it's all about timing. So we'll see. We'll see. Are you talking about Urban Meyer potentially staying in Hollywood? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It, it, it could be a matter of timing. I'm not sold on the whole idea that Urban Meyer is ever going to coach again. I, I'm not sold on that. So uh, it, it, it may have to be somebody else, uh, you know, who, who that is, I uh, don't know. But, uh, it, it, you know, that there are enough big-name coaches out there, I think, that, that can do better and that USC should be able to attract. Well, uh, one thing you and I can agree on is that we like uh, Cole Smesco and the FGC women's basketball team. Uh, what are your expectations if and when this season takes place? You know, FGCU women are going into a, an interesting season this year. A season uh, in which they have less returning firepower than they've probably had in the entirely two decades of the Carl Semesco era, which is the entire era of FGC women's basketball, as he is the original coach. They lost their top eight, uh, excuse me, their top seven scores from last year's team. You know, so many stars and their two uh, top scorers coming back this year. Uh, Tyra Cox, who, by the way, is a, a great talent, averaged 2.3 points a game last year. Alyssa Blair, 5'11", going to be 
going to be a great presence inside, but she only averaged uh, two points a game last year. Now, what does that mean? Well, it probably means that they're two great talented players that Samesco and his staff have brought in, and they just couldn't get on the court because of all the talent that was already established and in there ahead of them. So will they, you know, uh, be able to uh, sort of set their own um, mark and their own standard this coming year? I actually believe they are. But, you know, I have seen the FGCU picked amazingly. This is the FGCU women's team picked as low as number four in the preseason uh, going into this year. And I have never seen that before. So, yeah, uh, a lot of people believe that this is the biggest rebuilding year and Carl Semesco's uh, tenure at FGCU. Uh, but I'm telling you that uh, FGCU will finish no lower than third in the conference. Yeah. How about some of these incoming transfers? Because, you know, FGCU has basically been transfer city. Carl Semesco has done a great job of, uh, of utilizing those, but in terms of the great transfers that we've seen, Kirsten Bell is the uh, that former uh, five-star recruit. She uh, from Ohio State is going to be a transfer that's coming in, but she's not going to be able, eligible to play this year. So she's going to have to wait, sit out, and and she'll be eligible to play next year. And I think uh, uh, Leah Stanley, who was a guard that came in from uh, Eastern Michigan, uh, she's not going to be eligible until next season either. So while next year looks like a, a year to, to really get excited about FGCU going into the season without having seen them, this year has all those questions because we won't have those players yet this year. Yeah, more questions than answers. I, I'm guessing Cole Smith will have uh, fixes for all those questions, for all those problems. <laughs> He'll find a way. He always does. Are they? Are they? Are they uh, going to win the A Sun regular season title? Uh, not sure. This is that team. Uh, will they be dangerous in the A Sun tournament? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, reigning threes and potentially winning another title in March. Why would I be surprised? I mean, yeah. Trying to think, what was the year that FGC went to the land of? few years ago and won there. Was it 18, 17, or 18? When they went to DeLand? Yeah. Yeah, 18, uh, I guess, uh, was that the last year that they've done that? But, you know, Carl Somesco has made a career out of being Stetson women's basketball's biggest nightmare, reoccurring nightmare. That they, they, they were put on this earth to break Stetson's heart year after year, it seems like. Yeah, just, ima <laughs> just imagine if FGCU and Stetson were in different conferences, how many times would the Hatters have been in March Madness? True, and that's a great point. It's, that's a great point. Lynn Bria, uh, you know, she's actually going to have a great team this year, uh, but uh, it's, been a tough, it's been a tough one. FGCU has been a stumbling block for the Hatters, especially in, in women's basketball forever. And what do you think about a Flies men's team? Because I'm liking some of these pieces, but the problem is I'm not sure how much they fit because this season could be unprecedented like we've never seen in college basketball. 
to, to say the least, uh, a, a very interesting year for, for the FGCU men. It's, uh, you know, Coach Michael Flash's third season. He really had to overhaul based on his system um, and the, the style that he likes to play, which is the, the old Dunk City style, the high fly, the up and down the court, which, you know, obviously won – uh, in, in, in 2013, the Sweet 16 with Andy Enfield. Uh, Coach Fly was an assistant on that team. That's what made that team great. Comer, Thompson, Feeler, Sherwood, they love to fly above the rim and get up and down the court so quickly. Joe Dooley came in when Enfield went to USC, won a lot at FGCU, totally took the air out of the ball, though. He could not have been more different than what the traditional Dunk City style calls for. Uh, not all fans like that either, of course, uh, after seeing all the, uh, the excitement of, of the Dunk City teams. Yeah, he won some, some A-Sun titles. Yes, he did. But um, that's why Michael Fly is trying to and having to, and it's taken some time to, to sort of reimagine uh, FGCU style. He wants to bring back the, the high-flying, fast-tempo pace of uh, FGCU men's basketball. So it's taken a lot of roster shifting around, uh, and it's taken a couple of years to do that. This is a big year, the big year for Coach Fly. He's had the opportunity to bring in guys that are his guys and guys that, that aren't wanting to play the style that he wants to play or not here anymore. So I think this is a big year. Uh, I, I'm on record as saying FGCU this year, the men's team, is going to host a game in the A-Sun tournament. I'm picking them to finish fourth in the league, and that will, uh, that will allow them, uh, if the A-Sun tournament is played like it ordinarily gets played, who knows what's going to happen with bubble situations, but but uh, I like them to finish fourth in the league, which is going to be the the, the highest uh, spot that they've finished under Coach Fly, and and I think this team is going to sort of coalesce around him and his system. Gagliardi, who's a great shooter, uh, had an up and down year last year. I think he's going to be key uh, for FGCU. Caleb Caddo, he's going to be a junior, averaged 12, 13 points a game last year. A uh, big year for him. Jalen Warren, dribble penetrator. Gets in the lane, has that patented floater that he uh, that he loves to put up. Won one at the buzzer uh, this year, uh, so I, I think those pieces that, that but the but the players have to step up for Coach Fly. That's got to happen. He can only do so much. I also I also think usually year three is when you could see whether or not not just a program but the players buy into a system because now you've got couple recruiting cycles. You one is just seeing like which players fit and which players are not necessarily great fits. Year three is often where you see if a coach is bought in the system and whether the players bind what coach fly wants. And I think that's a very smart point. Um, and I think that uh, the players uh, that are here do buy into that. The ones who previously were that aren't now uh, were the ones that needed to, uh, their change needed to be made. Hey, by the way, uh, watch for some of the new faces on this FGCU team this year, like Dom London, um, a couple of guards, uh, Luis Roland, uh, Rosa, Victor Rosa, 
Franco Miller, who uh, played uh, at Old Miss, he's transferring in. Uh, that is going to be a, a big factor on how many games that FGC wins. Can those guys get integrated into the lineup, um, learn to play uh, with the, the guys who are already here, um, and how quickly they can learn to play together uh, is going to be key. But there are, there's a lot of talent there that's coming in. Yeah, more transfers for FGCU. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't want to be in Florida. <laughs> who, who doesn't want to play Dunk City? You're living in paradise. You've got a beach on campus, and you've got beautiful Alico Arena. you got Dylan Schmitter. Hey, biggest fan. He's the super fan of FGCU. you got Tom and Jay Webb on the call. What more could you want? <laughs> I'll, I'll take them apples yeah. twice or two or three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. There's nothing like FGCU men's and women's basketball. Uh, it's uh, it's a passion for all of us. There's no doubt about it, and we can't wait. It's coming soon. I can't wait. I can't wait. I think we can't wait. What is it, like three, four weeks away? I... So – College basketball is uh, can start November 25th uh, around the country. Uh, now, the out-of-conference schedule for FGCU is not etched in stone. It has not been released yet. There are still some negotiations going on with some teams. I know there's going to be uh, some games against some in-state teams that uh, will happen before the first of the year. Uh, the revised conference schedules were just released yesterday for, for both for the entire ASUN conference. Um, and they're going to do sort of pod uh, travel situations. So every team that they will play instead of you know, the, every, every, they'll play everybody in the conference twice with the home and home, but all of those will happen within the same given weekend. So when FGCU hosts Liberty, for example, they'll play, like uh, either a Thursday, Saturday, or a Friday, Sunday. So they play them back-to-back. -back. Every opponent you have in the ASUN Conference, you're going to play them back-to-back, -back, two out of three days. So, And that's just uh, to, to minimize the travel. So that's out there. That has been posted. Those uh, conference schedules are out. We're just waiting to see when the out-of-conference schedules, the non-conference is coming out, and we don't have the dates officially on that yet. Well, Tom, thank you for joining the Big D Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you uh, call some FGCU basketball soon. <laughs> hey, listen, Dylan, I, I really am honored that you uh, would have me on uh, the Big D Show, and and you are so passionate and, and wise about sports. I mean, listen, everybody out there, this, nobody knows more about more different sports, intricacies, like little stuff, than Dylan. This guy is an absolute walking textbook on all sports. So uh, it's a great, uh, great show to listen to, and I'm honored to be on it. Thank you for having me. Thank you.